6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Job, chapter 42. Well, we are in session eight, in fact, the concluding session of our study in the book of Job. And I'll entitle this session after James's remark in chapter 5, verse 11, The End of the Lord. What is the Lord's end? What is His purpose? What, what's the Lord doing in all of this? It may surprise you that the subject of Job is far broader than most people realize. The glib answer is, well, Job's all about why do the innocent suffer? Well, that certainly occurs in the book of Job, but it's interesting it's not even discussed by God, who answers all these other characters. So we need to be sensitive right up front that there's something much more profound going on than simply that paradox. Well, we've, we were treated in the first uh, chapter with something that Job didn't know. That there was a challenge posed between God and Satan. And God, by the way, it's God's challenge, not Satan's. But Satan's premise is that, that uh, Job was faithful because he's blessed. Take away his blessing, he'll curse you to your face. That was his premise. And God set out to you know, let, let uh, Satan have his way with Job, first with his possessions, and then his family, and then his health. But it didn't stop there. The real thrust of Satan were these three characters, these so-called comforters or counselors, that I like to call the ash heap trio, as they gave their all their various theories. And as we went through those discourses, one of the strange aspects of those passages, often misunderstood, is that you can't find fault with any of their arguments. They're theologically sound, they're seminary sound, and yet misapplied. And uh, that's not just an opinion, editorial opinion of our own. God himself indicts them when it's all over. But after those three comforters, we encounter this strange young man called Elihu, a spirit-filled young man, which is sort of the bridge between those human counselors and God himself, who then steps in to respond to the whole situation. One of the things that we observed as we went along is Job's growth. He himself changes through those chapters, and that in itself is a very, very key study. But from chapter 38 on, we no longer hear of Satan. That's over. In fact, God himself steps in to deal with the situation, and he starts by giving Job this intriguing science quiz that we looked at the last couple of times. But in all of this, of course, we also climaxed uh, last time with these two out of the 12 animals, two were singled out near the end to receive more space than all the others put together, the behemoth and the leviathan, which of course were real animals in that broad category that we might call dinosaurs that were alive at that time. But we also noticed in the text that God was using them even in in a much deeper way, almost in an idiomatic or symbolic way. And what... God was really doing was treating Job to a tour of the moral problems in the universe. 
And of course, he used the symbolism of the behemoth and the Leviathan uh, to give um, Job a glimpse of the depth of evil in humanity. In fact, what the New Testament calls the mystery of lawlessness. You know, it's interesting, we don't really make any advance from century to century. We advance technologically. We're always you know, obsessed with all of that. But if you go through literature and you go through the history of the human predicament, you find the same sins, the same um, uh, despicable behavior uh, from century to century, from generation to generation. We have the same moral problems today uh, as they had uh, since the dawn of human uh, history. Now, as Job begins to learn the problems in his own heart, the problems that God has to deal with continually, he finally bows his head before this breathtaking vision of God's power and his wisdom and his glory, and he repents in dust and ashes. And that brings us to the final chapter, chapter 42, that we take on tonight. Chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Remember up till now, it's been the Lord said, the Lord said, so this way, okay. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. I want you to notice Job's new view of God. He, uh, he says, Job says, I know he can do everything. You see, realize Job's view of God has expanded tremendously through this whole excursion. He now sees the absolute sovereignty of God. All that God does is right. He's always acting consistent with his own character, which is love. That's a very key concept, by the way. Don't for a minute swallow the lie that Allah is the Arabic name for the God of the Old Testament. Nothing could be further from the truth. Allah is an untranslated Arabic word, which really stands for the God, a specific God, the moon God. But more to the point, Allah, his character is presented in the Quran and in Islam as unknowable, capricious. He can do anything whenever he wants to. Read that untrustworthy. The God of the Bible, the living God, delights in being known and delights in making and keeping promises. And he always acts consistent with his character, which is love. But Job also has a new view of himself from all this. Let's go on to verse 3. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? He's quoting God. That was God's challenge to him in his first address back there in chapter 38. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not, things too wonderful for me which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak, I will question or demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore? I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. You know, it's fascinating to study your Bible from cover to cover, and every time someone is confronted with the throne of God, like in Isaiah 6 and so forth, the response is always the same. A response of just absolute abjection of themselves. Isaiah, when he was confronted with the throne of God, he says, Woe is me! And uh, 
Uh, again and again, uh, and Daniel falls on his face, and John in Revelation falls on his face. There's always, when you're confronted with the magnificence of God, the, the, the first thing that sets in is to the gulf that is between us and God, the, 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 to how desperately destitute we are, especially when confronted with the majesty of God. See, the inner eye of Job's uh, heart sees the nature of God. And the result, he says, I abhor myself. That's repentance. That's real repentance. He admits that he's ignorant. He says, you're right about me. I don't know enough to challenge the wisdom of the Almighty. I speak without knowing what I'm talking about. In effect, what Job's saying, especially after you know chapter 38 and 39 and 40. So he admits that he's ignorant, but he also sees something, says, in effect, something within me has been proud, lifted up, self-righteous, confident that I was right. I've been wrong all along. I despise myself. That's paraphrasing Job's attitude here. He finally, Job has finally given up trying to defend and justify himself. So now God begins to heal him and pour his life and his blessing into uh, into Job. Blessing he never even dreamed of. And that's the whole story of Scripture, by the way. Not just here. This is the, it's interesting. This is the oldest book in the Bible, and yet it summarizes the most profound pinnacle truths of the Scripture. Remember what Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. What do you mean by that? Those that are bankrupt in themselves. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So God will now begin to heal a life that repents before him and fill it with blessing and honor and glory and power. And nothing can compare with the discovery of a relationship with God himself. How breathtaking. Just awesome. So this is what we're going to see in this closing section of Job. Here he is confessing his sin and discovering the gift of forgiveness. At this point, God turns to our ash heap trio. Okay, Verse 7. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these things to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends. For ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. Boy, that says a mouthful. First of all, clearly those three friends, you can spend all the time you want analyzing those discourses. We went through them verse by verse, but rather uh, quickly. You can go back and, and study those, and you'll find two things interesting. One is that each one of those discourses can't be really attacked from a seminary theology point of view. And yet, they're wrong. That's sobering to realize. You can have truth in certain contexts, but use it out of context. And, and how do I know they're wrong? Because God says so, right here. You have spoken of me the thing that is right. Uh, you have not spoken of me the thing that is right. They were wrong about God. What's interesting, this is also the first place that we hear that Job said something right. That's kind of interesting. There's something else you'll notice here. You notice that somebody's not mentioned here, and that's Elihu. He's not indicted with those three friends. A lot of commentators miss that point. I think it's a very profound point. Can you imagine if you were Eliphaz? Remember those elaborate discourses we went through? Can you imagine what a stunning shock it was to him? Here is sort of the lead guy, the eloquent theologian, 
that was speaking his all the way through that thing. It was had took the lead in all those in those three rounds of discourses, and um, to find out God says you're all wet, so to speak. See, they must have been confident at the time that they were defending God's honor. They were upholding His sovereignty among men, and they were scathing in their denunciation of human pride and evil. God says, you guys don't have it right at all. How crushing that must be. I wonder how many prominent leadership in the Christian community, I wonder how many people who are on uh, on the electronic media, radio, TV, and so forth, are going to have that kind of an embarrassment before the throne of God, where they've been mouthing off against a really, a lot of us can be have you know deviant opinions about things and may be wrong about certain controversial views, fine. But these guys that go around making their mission, making their business, the accusers being the accusers of the brethren. There's a number of people that are very prominent because they are attacking other Christian members of the body because they have some different opinion about something. Dangerous ground. That's the work of Satan. Now here, here, these guys are being charged by God that they were defaming him. What a blow to their pride, huh? Now what was it that offended God so much? They had formulated a theory of suffering in which God was nothing but an arbitrator of justice, a great cosmic judge who visited punishment upon the, those that did wrong, without exception and instantly. You can find instances, cases that would seem to justify, but that was their theory of, of, of uh, suffering. Conversely, they saw him as one that rewarded those who did right with prosperity and blessing, and also instantly. Health and wealth kind of stuff. And uh, they saw God as a judge. The other, the other extreme shows God as little concern with uh, compassion, love, mercy, patience, and so forth. Their view of God was very distant, and very distorted from reality, and that's that's the danger. Many Christians are like this. That's the reason I'm emphasizing this. They see God as stern and harsh. Job's three friends said nothing about God's mercy, about his compassion, his patience, his willingness to reach out to men, and his yearning for them to repent. They never said anything about that. So what they said was true, but it was incomplete. And if it's the truth that's incomplete, it's a falsehood. It's incomplete. It's not true. The argument is that God sends sends rain upon the just and unjust alike. His blessings are not withheld from those who do wrong and are rebellious. Romans 2.4 points out that the goodness of God is designed to lead to repentance. Now, furthermore, the the ashy trio charged Job with hypocrisy, outright wickedness, And they did all this without any basis in fact whatsoever. You can't find any place there, especially in those early chapters that they were dealing with, that Job was a hypocrite. Quite the contrary. He was very sincerely concerned, trying to understand his predicament. They took for granted he was a hypocrite. How often do we do do that? When someone has a style that we don't quite understand or what have you. These guys charged this man Job... And this was one that God himself said was upright in his conduct. They charged him with some deep and secret sin in his heart. Now, in doing so, they passed themselves off 
or be, uh, as being agents of God. You realize how dangerous that is? You put yourself in those shoes, you run the risk of misrepresenting God. And God takes offense at that because they were actually doing the devil's work. This whole attack on Job was Satan's handiwork. They were, not unknowingly of course, but agents of Satan. Man, dangerous stuff. Why do I say that's one of the titles of Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Be careful when you're accusing someone that's a member of the body. That doesn't mean we shouldn't exhort. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be careful with doctrine. That's all fine. But you don't attack. You don't accuse the brethren. Dangerous stuff. You unwittingly become an instrument of Satan. They were unwittingly instruments of Satan's attempt to torment Job. Three guys. Eliphaz the eloquent. Excuse me, the eloquent. He did. He spoke on the basis of his own observation experience. And Bildad the brutal. He was <laughs> blunt and to the point, and so far the zealous. And he rests all his assumptions on orthodox dogma. The fact that Elihu was not mentioned, I think, is very profound. He was more of an intercessor than he was a judge, and he, of course, was the bridge between their council and when God himself steps in. But it's interesting, up till now, in this whole book, we've never seen an acknowledgement or any recognition that Job had said anything right. However, twice in this account, God says that Job was right in what he said about him. In other words, Job may have been wrong about a lot of things, but he wasn't wrong about God. All the way along, even when he was confused, didn't know the answers. He never compromised his view of God's majesty, his sovereignty. Key point. That may be what the book is really all about. See, the moment that God showed him the sin that was deeply embedded in his heart, he immediately repented. That was the thing that David did. Here's David, guilty of adultery, guilty of murder, you name it, and yet he's the only guy in the Bible of which God can say, there's a man after my own heart. What? Because he's a, he's a sinner, aren't we all? What made David distinctive? Well, among other things, he repented. God is seeking repentant hearts. You and I are sinners. That's no news. But are we repentant? If we are, that's news to God. That's great. Job always repented immediately. No hesitation, no argument, no self-defense about that. So, Job was all, always true to the facts as he saw them. He sometimes didn't see them very clearly. There are things about himself and God's rule of the universe that he didn't understand, but he was always honest about what he could see. And no distorting, twisting the facts to fit some inadequate theology, as, of course, Bildad and, and uh, Eliphaz and, and Zophar did. It's interesting that Job always took his problem, his confusion, whatever, he took it to God. Do you realize there's not one case there, not one instance where the three counselors prayed? Boy, that's scary. His three friends never prayed for Job. There's a lesson there, isn't there? Not only that it, they lost something that could have been very effective, but it also is indicative of where they were really at. Now, when Job finally does repent, he declares without reservation that God is truly God, that he is holy and wise and just and good and, and uh, 
even when he seems to be otherwise. See, Job doesn't put his understanding as a prerequisite to acknowledging God's sovereignty. And ultimately, that's the highest expression of faith. We do not trust our human observation as to what really is reality. We do not assume that we have all the facts by which we can judge and condemn God. Let's go down to verse 8. We're doing great tonight, believe it or not. Okay. <laughs> Therefore, take you now seven... He's talking, now, God is still talking to these three characters, right? Therefore, take you now seven bullocks and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you. For him will I accept. Wow. Lest I deal with you after your folly and that ye have not spoken of me the thing which is right, like my servant Job. Man, is verse 8 a treasure for our friend Job. Boy, does he nail him. He tells these guys... You get the bullocks and stuff, and my servant Job will pray for you. Count your blessings, you turkeys. <laughs> for him will I accept. Boy, do we yearn to hear that from God when we before the throne, that he will accept us. And he can only accept us because we're in Christ, certainly not for ourselves. Him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly. <laughs> And that ye have not spoken of me the thing which is right like my servant Job. How humiliating. Again, however, there's no <laughs> resisting, there's no argument, there's no hesitation, there's no rebuttal. Seven, of course. Why seven? Seven's the number of completeness in the scripture. The bull, well, that's usually a, a, a typical emblem of servant, uh, a service, even to the death. And a ram is often viewed as a symbol of energy or commitment. And, uh, and Job, of course, will pray for them. Notice the emphasis by God on intercessory prayer. God's making a point to them that Job's going to pray for them. I mean, that's neat for them, but notice how God invokes that device. There's no pardon without prayer on your behalf. God is telling him, in effect. See, prayer is not a way to get God to do what we want. Prayer is a way that God enlists us in what He wants to have happen. Without pray, uh, uh, prayer, he, uh, uh, he will not do anything. As it often says, without Him, we can't, but without us, He won't. Strange, strange mystery. James, of course, reminds us, uh, you have not because you ask not. How impoverished our lives are and uh, the lives of our friends and our family. Why? Because we underpray. All of us here. I won't ask for a show of hands. <laughs> we all underpray. If there are things lacking that God would like to do, maybe it's our fault. But there's also a, a beautiful picture here of forgiveness. You can only imagine what Job prayed. It doesn't say what he prayed. You can imagine what he prayed. Something along these lines. Oh Lord, here are these three friends of mine. They've been stubborn, hard-hearted, foolish, ignorant, just like I was. You forgave me, now I ask you to forgive them as well. That's what I suspect. Words to that effect is probably what Job did. Well, anyway, we're down to verse 9. So Eliphaz, the Temanite, and Bildad, the Shuite, 
And Zophar the Namathite um, went and did according as the Lord commanded them. And the Lord also accepted Job. So now we get to an interesting part of the book. Job is now restored. We went through chapter 1 and all that trauma. Let's see what happens here in verse 10. The Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. And also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. This is what James in his epistle, actually the epistle of Yaakov, we always say James, but the Hebrew is Yaakov. He was the brother of the Lord. He wrote the epistle that we call the epistle of James. He calls this the end of the Lord, the ultimate purpose, in effect, of the Lord, in verse 11 of the fifth chapter of the James. This was God's purpose from the beginning. Now, God is unchanging, compassionate, merciful, and he wants to reveal his heart to Job. This whole exercise is God's way of revealing his heart to Job. And who else? You and I. Right on. Right on. It's sort of like Lamentation, as Jeremiah says in Lamentations chapter 3, starting about verse 31, uh, Jeremiah says, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies, for he doth not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. See, God does not willingly afflict or grieve the sons of men. He'll do it because he loves us, and we need it for some reason. Wow. We'll come back to that. Let's move on with verse 11. Now, the Lord is starting to reward Job. He gave, he gave him, says, uh, he gave him twice as much as he had before. Is that just a figure of speech? No, let's look at verse 11. He gets very, spe- 12, he gets very specific. Then came there unto him all his brethren and all his sisters and all that had been of his acquaintance before and did eat bread with him in his house, and they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave a piece of money, and every one an earring of gold. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and a 1,000 yoke of oxen and a 1,000 she-asses. You've been listening to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Job. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music